Welcome to Andy Staples on three. It's a Dear Andy episode, but first, we got a couple special things for you. One, North Carolina coach Mac Brown joins the show talking about how the Tar Heels got so much better on defense and also about delivering the good news to Tez Walker that he was finally eligible. It's a heck of a story. Be, be there shortly for that. But first, we have to talk about a little bad news. Brock Bowers, the tight end for the Georgia Bulldogs, best tight end in the country, probably the best player on Georgia's team. He had to have tightrope surgery to correct a high ankle sprain or more to manage a high ankle sprain. And this is a similar surgery to the one Tua Tonga-Vailoa had a few years ago. Remember, he got hurt in the SEC championship game, had the surgery, came back for the Orange Bowl. Bowers doing this to try to get back for what they hope is going to be a playoff run for Georgia, uh, hoping an SEC championship game. But we'll have to see what happens as he recovers because there's no guarantee that he's back for any of this stuff. It's a high ankle sprain, and obviously he's a first-round prospect. Nobody at Georgia wants anything bad to happen to him. So they're going to they're going to be careful with this thing, but it it does seem like he is trying to get back. It's tough news for the Bulldogs, tough news for Bowers who was having a great season. We talked about him being a potential Heisman candidate. I never thought he was going to be able to to compile the stats required to win the Heisman, but I do think there are a lot of people who look at him as one of the best players in the country. He was going to get some votes. Now Oscar Delp, he becomes tight end one at Georgia. What does Georgia do? I'd say probably a little more one tight end personnel, 11 personnel, one running back, one tight end instead of 12 personnel. But Oscar Delp, the next in line, could be very good. And also Lawson Lucky, who had this very procedure in the preseason after incurring a high ankle sprain. So Lucky may be ready to go at this point. He's played in a couple games. So if you got to go 12 personnel, that's probably how you're doing it with, with Oscar Delp and Lawson Lucky. So good luck to Brock Bowers as he recovers. Obviously, big news in Athens. And a lot of people wanted to see how they could help our West Blankenship of Dogs HQ and the On3 Network. Well, I think Wes, Wes wanted to go above and beyond. It, I, and that's that's what Wes does. Wes is... Wes is one of those guys that he's a giver. And so he offered one of his ankles for Brock. The Doesn't sound like he found a lot of takers, but here is Wes giving it his best shot to try to give one of his healthy ankles to Brock Bowers. Do y'all do ankle transplants? I'm trying to give my ankle to Brock Bowers. I have a perfectly good ankle. I can send you pictures of it. Y'all can check it out. It's never been injured. Uh-huh. Okay, hang on just a second. Maybe things are looking up. So no, we do not do that. Well, thank you for looking into it. You're very welcome. Do y'all do ankle transplants? Ankle transplants? Yes. Are you referring to ankle replacement? Yes, in another person. I'm trying to get my ankle to Brock Bowers and help him get back on the field. Is that something oh that y'all do? That's so sweet. Oh, I wish I could say yes. I 
as sweet as that is, that's not something that we can do or will do. Uh, I know he's got to get a surgery. I figured while they were in there, this might be a HIPAA violation. I don't know. So stop me if it is, but I don't know if my insurance will cover it, but I'll go out of pocket if I have to. Yeah, they don't do that kind of surgery. Wes tried. And I think there's probably quite a few people in Bulldog Nation that would happily donate one of their ankles to Brock Bowers for the rest of this season. But again, George is recruited very well at the tight end position. So hopefully Oscar Delp, Lawson Lucky can replace Brock for now. And with any luck, Brock will be back by the end of the season. Again, he's one of the most fun players to watch in college football. It's not only because of what he does when he catches the ball. The dude loves to block, just buries people. And it's it's a lot of fun seeing him play. We talked to him at SEC Media Days, and he's doing his George, his Kirby Smart impression. And I, you wouldn't think a guy from Napa, California, would be so eager to just bury people in the dirt, but he certainly is. And so, good luck to Brock Bowers. Get well soon, and we hope to see you again this season. We're going to talk about another team now that has had its share of, of bad injury luck. And, and we'll talk about it in this interview. Mac Brown has had quite the, the season so far. You know, we, we, the, we've got the Tez Walker NCAA eligibility situation. You've got the defense being much better. You've got injuries that are, are just weird. They've lost their kicker and their punter for the entire season. They're starting an Australian punter who didn't even know how to put on football equipment this summer. It's it's a it's been a wild ride for the Tar Heels, but they're sitting at six and zero. They just beat Miami. They play Virginia this week, and they look like one of the best teams in the country. It feels like they're on a collision course with Florida State for the ACC title, and it feels like Mac Brown has has gotten this program into the best place it's been since he's been here. Maybe as good as it was his first time around at North Carolina. It may be better than any of those teams he had. We'll see, because he did he did start off better one year. But the way they're going, this might be his best team ever in two times at North Carolina. Let's talk to Mac Brown about a crazy season and the quest to get Tez Walker eligible. We welcome Mac Brown, coach of the undefeated North Carolina Tar Heels. They just beat Miami. They're about to play Virginia. And you said something really interesting after the game that really struck me. You you said you were finally a good enough program to not play well and win. And I thought that was was pretty interesting because this is, in terms of of talent, probably the best team that you had played against. Yeah, Andy, that's so true. And it it makes a point because – uh, at times, there's so many teams out there that have to play perfect to win, and it's hard to do that. We, we don't have uh, um, pieces of video games. These are human beings, and they're young people, and they got girlfriends, and they got parent issues, and, and they, they lost their billfold, and they lost their cell phone, and, and they're flunked class. And <laughs> so all these things happen in their lives, and then we ask them to come, and, and they're entertainers on the weekend, and they have real lives during the week. And uh, most teams have to play really, really well to have a chance to win. And ours is older. Uh, we're experienced. We're confident. Uh, and we did some things that we weren't proud of on Saturday, coaching and playing. 
but we're still able to beat a really talented football team and, and really proud of that. And there's times in the past people would have said, well, North Carolina had a letdown. Well, the other thing is we've got more depth. Mm -hmm. So we're playing more people. So we're not as tired. So many teams don't have any depth this time of the year and they get worn out and people say, well, they were just flat. No, they're worn out. And then you have a few key injuries like we did in Pittsburgh last year. We lose two starting defensive linemen. People say they're not stopping the run. Well, we're not as good. Uh, so I, I think those are, uh, I'm at a, a stage in my life too, Andy, where I can just tell the truth and, and, and give facts out. A lot of people can't, uh, but it, it's, uh, it is true that uh, we got to play good. Uh, we've got to keep getting better, but we haven't played near our best game yet. We're six and zero, oh, and that's exciting. Well, and, and I'm sure everybody wants to talk about Drake May and, and now Tez Walker, but it feels like the defense is, is what has made you so much more complete this year. How much was it, Coach Chizik? You know, he had the long period where he was out of coaching, like you did before you came back. How much of that was him getting getting back used to that, and how much of it was you getting the roster that that can create the havoc that he wants? Andy, I think it was both. Uh, number one, we changed defenses from what Jay Bateman was doing for the the first three years, so that was a huge change. We changed some coaches. Charlton Warren came in with him. So that was different. Uh, and they had to get used to the other three coaches. And then we, uh, we, we take the five years that uh, Gene had been out. He hadn't been coaching, but he hadn't been coaching with Charlton Warren either. And uh, it's funny that it was an easier transition for me coming back as a head coach, because the only thing that really changed for me was uh, the early signing day. Mm -hmm. and, and that's and then then I and I all hit in and then transfer portal. But in my first year, my transition wasn't that much difficult, much different, simply because the, the official visits were in the spring and you can do that. And and people were signing in December instead of February. Other than that, the game was the game for me. And that's changed some with with the other things we're dealing with. But for Gene, things people were going faster. They had different formations, the uh, substitutions, different. Um, there were a lot of things that were different for him yeah, as a defensive coordinator. You got to call defenses like this now, or you got to have something that you can check to because they're going so fast you can't line up. Um, so all of that, to, and, and Gene's a great coach, obviously. He's won two national championships. He is a tremendous person, and I, I love him to death. And he was so honest, and he, he felt bad that we didn't play well, and he felt like he was responsible. And he's had a chip on his shoulder, man. He's done such a great job. And and, and great coaches can adjust at halftime. We've played tremendously well in the third quarter, Andy, and, and that's something he does through his experience for many years. Well, I, we talked to Cayman Rucker last week, and he said he loves playing in that defense because it, it, it's a lot of fun. It lets them kind of, you know, put their, put, pin their ears back and go. And it, it does seem like your defensive front does enjoy getting after the quarterback. Well, they really do. We, we didn't have tackles for loss last year. We didn't have enough sacks. And that was the other thing Gene realized is the game has changed. Everybody's got to be more aggressive. Kicking games, more aggressive. Offense, defense, more aggressive. And and you're going for fourth downs with analytics. And and uh, people, since they are going for fourth downs, you got to be more aggressive on third down. You can't sit on third and 10 anymore and let them run a draw for eight because they're going for fourth and two. Uh, so the game has changed so much. And and I'm glad to see great people and smart people like Gene adjust with it. So Tez had the, the breakout in his first game after a, a full week of practice. But can you take us back to that week where he got deemed eligible? We've all seen the video 
of you telling him that, that he's eligible and he gives you the big hug. What were the the moments like the minutes and hours before that, where you found out that he was going to be eligible and, and figuring out, okay, how, how do we tell him? What do, what do we do now? Andy, we, uh, we, we learned Friday night at about six o'clock before the Charlotte game, he's not going to play. And 30 family members and friends have tickets and it's a life's dream to play in his hometown against South Carolina in Bank America stadium with the, the Panthers where he, He's seen games forever. So that's crushing. We, we worry about him. He doesn't even want to go to the game. So I have to talk him into coming back to the game. Then the next Thursday, another committee looks at it. And and at uh, 9 o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, they they have their process with him for, for an hour. And then we get a call at 4 o'clock. He's not going to play against App State the next week. So we have to bring him in again. And he's just absolutely crushed because we feel like it's a no-brainer. And we feel like he's going to be playing with both of these processes and, and there, there wasn't any reason to feel that it wasn't going to be that way. So then we have to look at uh, uh, making sure he's taken care of with mental health. What's he going to do? Is he going to play? Is he going to stay in school? Is he going to practice? Is he going to work out for pro scouts and try to get drafted? He's got all these things we got to check off. And uh, again, we talked him into coming back for the game because he didn't want to. And, we, we put his number, a little decal on the back of the helmet. And after one game, he said, Coach, can you take that off? It makes me feel uncomfortable because I'm not playing. I, I'm not I'm not a guy on the field. We shouldn't be having my number on the helmet. He said, yes. I said, do you want to travel? No, I, I'm. we need to give that to a spot for a guy that's going to play. And then he comes back, and this was really cool. And he says, uh, I want to be on the scout team. I, I want to be on the scout team. I'll be on the scout team for the um, – for, for special teams as well, because I want to help this team win. So then we don't say anything to him much because you don't want to hurt, hurt him again. I mean, how many letdowns can you have? Here's a kid, and he, he doesn't get NIL money. He doesn't get to go to the pros. I mean, there's boxes checked off for him that are changing his life. Um, but there's a lot of important people are working on this, the trustees, the um, attorney general. the uh, He's got a lawyer through NIL. And we're, we're hoping that he might can play again, but we're not sure now. We've been told twice. So uh, long story shorter here, it, it, uh, we're, we're supposed to hear by noon on, on uh, Thursday um, before last week's game. Uh, at noon, um, Bubba gets a call. At, they work it out. I get the call at 1230 that the NCAA is going to release at 1245 that he's going to play, uh, that he's eligible. So he's in class. So I actually call him in class and he's afraid to answer it. And then he gets it. And I said, you need to come see me. And I didn't want to get him all excited and have him tell somebody in class where his parents knew. And he said, coach, I can't leave class. I said, you can leave class. Just tell a professor that you've got an emergency. You, you just need to, to leave. And he said, coach, he may be mad at me. I said, just trust me. We're going to be good. <laughs> First time I've ever told a kid to leave class. He comes over, he walks in. Lonnie Galloway, as coach, is being a little cool. And he said, ah, coach, got something to tell you. And I said, no, Lonnie, come on, man, you're eligible. And I broke down and he broke down. And I don't think he could believe that it was true. But, Andy, between 1230 and 1245, we had to get his parents, his friends, his high school coach. Uh, we had to teamworks our team to make sure they knew it and our staff. And then after it was over, we realized he hadn't practiced for three weeks. He hadn't thrown in with Drake. So we get him downstairs with Lonnie Galloway, and he starts looking at the game plan, putting him in. And then we have to decide, is it fair to start him? We won four games with guys that have been busting their tail. That's not fair. So we didn't start him. Uh, he didn't play for about the first two series. And I told Lonnie, I think we're good. 
come on, man, put him in the game. And he busted a few things because he hadn't been practicing. But with a full week, he settled down. He's just playing now and having fun. Was it hard for you to come out as strong as, as you did? Because you, you've not typically been that outspoken about anything. But you were very forceful about this particular issue. Yes, I, I felt like that uh, uh, my job is to treat these players like I would expect my son or my daughter to be treated. And if, if I've told the guys, if you mess up, my sons and my daughters mess up, they get consequences. And I want them punished because I want them to learn from it. So that, that would be the same. But if you're wronged, and in this case, Andy, I felt like he was totally wrong. This was a no-brainer. He didn't play at one school. He, it, uh, uh, he, he didn't play. He practiced 15 times. They weren't going to play at North Carolina Central. So this was not a double transfer. And then people would say, well, you were one of the ones saying there's too many transfers. I, absolutely. I, I was one of those people. Yeah. I said that. Yeah. But, but there, there's a difference in common sense. And I'm not a guy who wants to see guys transferring four times, three times for no reason because they got mad one morning, they got up and transferred. That's not healthy for kids. But I also thought that when everybody was transferring, it wasn't right and there was no common sense. But let's don't go now to nobody transfers and there's no common sense. We've got to put common sense into this. And this young man had so many reasons that it was okay that that's why, unlike I normally do, um, I'm always trying to say the right things, but I thought the NCAA was wrong. And, and I thought they were totally wrong in hurting a young man's life. And I felt like for our players, for our parents, uh, and, and for Tez and his family who could not stand up for themselves, uh, that I had to do it. And, and it, uh, and I wasn't against the NCAA. I wasn't trying to embarrass them. I wasn't really trying to call them out. I was just trying to say, this isn't fair. So let's make it fair. Come on, people, let's treat this young guy right. And and to their credit, they looked at it again and changed the, the direction and, and made him eligible. So I applaud them for that. So one other this is not this has been a season of strange things. And and so you're undefeated. If I had told you a year ago that you would be undefeated in the middle of the season and you've lost your kicker and your punter for the year, <laughs> and you got to start a 22-year-old Australian freshman at punter who didn't even know how to put on a football uniform this summer. <laughs> what you said. It, it, it's crazy. We're one of the themes for our team this year. We've got a young guy, Tyler Kraft, that's got stage four cancer and he's been fighting it for a year and a half. And we've got a, a chaplain that's got a very rare nerve disease and he was perfect two years ago and he's really struggling now. Um, and then you, you see a receiver get hurt last year. I mean, last week and he, he's just running, uh, Kobe Pace, Kobe Pace hour, yeah. he plants his foot and he, he breaks his foot. And, and here he is. He didn't have any contact where he had a great game the week before our punter gets a block punt, picks it up, runs for a first down, hurts his knee. Our kicker says he, he hurt his growing kicking off. I, I mean, uh, what we've said is this is a year that we, we can learn a lot of lessons about life because we can't control what happens to us but we can control how we respond. So uh, Tom, be ready, man. You got to step up. And, and the message is for all of us, and whether it's in life or in football, uh, you're going to get an opportunity at some point and you better be ready for it because you may not get two. Um, and, and these young guys have stepped up. Our kicker had missed a kick and, and Tom punted really well on Saturday night, the first game he's ever played in his life. 
Uh, so it's, uh, but it's been very unique. Does Does Tom know what's going on on the other downs, or when you, or just when you send him out to punt? I don't think so. I don't even think he was a football fan. He's twenty two year old freshman, but when he told me he he ordered this uniform because he didn't know we gave him one. He had <laughs> never he'd never been to the United States. He'd never been on our campus when we signed him. So he shows up, and the poor soul's going around and. He's trying to learn. He said, we eat a lot more food over here. <laughs> I mean, it, and all the guys were sitting around saying, what are the animals like in Australia? <laughs> you all eat. What's your music like? And so it's it's been a, a lot of fun to, to welcome Tom. And and uh, to his credit, walking out there on an ABC national game packed house, uh, and he didn't even blink. He, he, he punted really well. We punted too many times. We usually don't punt six times, so we, we – he, he probably punted more times in that game than Ben Kiernan had punted all year. Well, here's to a more normal week for you this week. Thank you so much, Coach. Ho hopefully it, it stops being as weird and you can have kind of a, a calm week. Well, thanks, Andy. I do like this team. I really like our staff. They're all working well together, so we're actually having fun. And with the pressure now in college football, that's hard to do. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to make sure we all enjoy it, but we got to keep playing hard and and keep giving ourselves a chance to win. Undefeated and fun is a hell of a combo. Thank you, it, Coach. It really is. That is Mac Brown, who does seem to be having a lot of fun. This is this is as complete a team as they've had. It, it really is. And they played Virginia this week. That's a game they should win. And again, they feel like they're on that collision course with Florida State. For what I mean, that's the best. ACC championship game in the history of ACC championship games. If this all plays out the way we think it will don't know if they both wind up undefeated at the end of the season, they both have some, some games that they got to get through, but it's possible. There's certainly a bunch of winnable games ahead of both teams. So we will find out now there are some big games this week. You got Ohio state, Penn state, you got Tennessee, Alabama, you want to go to those games? You can. I realize they're sold out, but you can get tickets with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, redeem the code Staples for $20 off your first purchase. And you go on this app and you can see how easy it is. You just type in Alabama football. And it's going to give you the option for Alabama the band, which we love our harmonies here. But no, go to Alabama football, click on the Tennessee game. Click on the seat you want at Bryant Nenny Stadium. It'll show you the view in that seat. A couple taps more, you got your ticket. Want to go to the big one in Columbus, Penn State, Ohio State? Oh, yeah. They got tickets for that, too. You can get in for as low as 229 bucks. Listen, this is a huge game. Tickets are very much in demand. But game time's got them. You look at those seats, you figure out exactly where you want to sit, what your vantage point's going to be. A couple taps later, you got the tickets. If you want to transfer them on game day to your friends via text, you can do that too. So download the Game Time app, redeem the cone staples for $20 off your first purchase. The easiest way to get last minute tickets. Game Time is stress free, guaranteed. Now, I guarantee you some hot tickets will be the first time. There's home games in the playoff, the, the campus games in the playoff. That's not going to happen until next year. But every Monday night, we are doing the hypothetical 12-team playoff 
what it would look like if it actually started this season. Because one, we got to retrain our brains. We got to think in terms of what does this mean for the playoff? Like I mentioned last week, Tennessee, Texas A&M felt like an elimination game for A&M. Tennessee could keep going. And if it was a 12 team deal, same kind of this week, Tennessee, Alabama is definitely an elimination game for the four team playoff. The winner of, of, of this one keeps going. The loser of this one probably out, but it would sort of change the math with the 12 team playoff. I don't know that, that a team would be eliminated, but their back would be against the wall if they lost this game. Penn State, Ohio State. Don't know that it'll eliminate anybody. Don't I don't know that that one's going to eliminate anybody from the 14 playoff. But it is very interesting to think about what these matchups would look like this year because this year it feels like there are more teams that actually would have a chance. It doesn't feel like there's there's two teams or three teams that would just steamroll everybody. So let's look at this. Let's we'll, we'll go through the seeds. And I'm just right now projecting who I think is going to win each conference. Uh, we're using preseason hype, all that stuff too. Uh, I've got Georgia as the number one seed as the SEC champ. Even with Brock Bowers injury, I think Georgia can go 13 and up. I have Penn State at number two. I've been saying since the spring, I think Penn State wins the Big Ten. If they go lose in Columbus, they're going to be in a different place here next week. But I'm I'm sticking with them right now. They haven't done anything to disabuse me of the notion that this is the year that they can do it differently, that they can be in that upper echelon in the Big Ten as opposed to being a notch below Michigan and Ohio State. But again, we will find out on Saturday. Number three, I have Washington winning the Pac-12. They just beat Oregon. They're going to be the favorite from, from now on, though obviously they have a, a pretty tough schedule to go. Number four, Oklahoma. I have them as the Big 12 champ. Number five, I have Michigan as an at-large. Number six, Florida State, the ACC champ. Number seven, Oregon, an at-large. Eight, Ohio State. Nine, Texas. Ten, Alabama. Eleven, Mac Brown's North Carolina Tar Heels. And number 12, your Mountain West champ, Air Force. Air Force replaces Wyoming, which replaced Fresno State. Air Force is undefeated. That doesn't mean they stay that way. This, this is a spot in the real world in this year's New Year's Six. The highest ranked group of five champ could be the Mountain West champ. Air Force, if they keep going, it could be them. But Tulane is sitting right there. They lost to Ole Miss, but they beat Memphis the other night. Tulane looks like the best team in the American. They're potentially going to be in that spot for the second consecutive year. We shall see. But let's see what this bracket, this 12-team group would look like. Let's see what games we'd be getting. We'd be getting number 12 Air Force at number five Michigan. It's it, it actually would be a great first matchup for Michigan because it's such a different offense to play. Uh, I think it'd be a lot of fun. The winner would get Oklahoma in the Sugar Bowl. North Carolina, this is now this is we're gonna get some of these. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. There's a chance that you could have a North Carolina Florida State ACC championship game in Charlotte. And then turn around and have a North Carolina Florida State quarter or is it quarterfinal game? No, not quarterfinal. First round game in Tallahassee. It's gonna happen. 
you're going to have that. You're going to have rematches and you might have rematches of games that had just been played. You can't really change your rankings to deal with that. That's just going to happen. The winner would play Washington in the Fiesta Bowl in the quarterfinals. Number 10, Alabama at number seven, Oregon. This is one that we always wish we could see. It's a little bit different now when you've got a guy who once worked for Nick Saban, who worked for Kirby Smart running Oregon's program. We always wanted to see Nick Saban against the Nick Saban's Alabama against Chip Kelly's Oregon Ducks. We never got that in the BCS era, and I, I, it's, a, it's a shame. It would have been amazing, but you would have probably had to get that in the national championship game or in one of the, the BCS bowls underneath the national championship game, in which case, I don't know how much Alabama would have cared to play in it. But we would get it here. Alabama at Austin Stadium. How awesome would that be? And winner against Penn State in the Rose Bowl. <laughs> Come on. Number nine, Texas within face. Number eight, Ohio State. Uh, the sound you hear would be television executives popping champagne bottles for these two brands playing one another in a single elimination tournament on campus. Like that is, that's all they want. <laughs> this is all they want right here. The winner would play Georgia in the Peach Bowl. It would be so much fun. So let's, let's rewire our brains. Let's, let's get them ready. Let's start thinking. What, where does somebody get eliminated? At loss number two, not necessarily something that eliminates you. Depends on who you play. But this, this set of teams, I don't know that there's a team with fewer than or with more than two losses in the bracket. Because I know there, there's been a thought, oh, you get three losses and four loss teams to play. I don't think you get four loss teams. And I don't know that there'd be a lot of years where you'd have any three loss teams either. I think two would probably be the max with that group, given what, what we've seen this season and what they'll probably end up at. So that is, that's a fun tournament. Will it be this fun next year? I hope it is. I hope the, the sport looks about the same and that it doesn't feel like there's one team that's a million times better than, than everybody else. But we'll find out. I, I just, I like the fact that we're not having these uncomfortable answers. There's a question in Dear Andy. When I read it, you'll you'll get preemptively mad, and you'll wish you could see that bracket this year. So let's we'll we'll, we'll tackle that in a bit. But let us go to Dear Andy, where you are the stars. Your questions guide the show, and our friend Nathan has come back with another video question. Let's hear Nathan's question. Dear Andy, I want to complain real quick about the over-reliance of statistics that we're seeing in football recently. It seems like every week you have a coach electing to go for it on fourth and three from their opponent's 30 because the statistics say that 60% of the time you're going to get it, even though they forget the fact that their offensive line is hot garbage. Or you have media personalities who pick X team to win the division because they have a lot of five-star recruits, even though their coach hasn't proven that he can do anything with those five-star recruits. What can we as the football public and what can coaches do to get it into our minds that just because a number will end up being 50%, 
over the course of 10 billion football seasons, that doesn't mean that it's going to be 50% of the time over the course of a single game or even a single season. Well, it's not going to be 50% over the course of a single game, but you keep doing it if it's 50% plus one because it will ultimately work better. Now, what Nathan did reference that I do think is important and I think coaches do need to understand is you can't be a complete slave to analytics when you aren't taking into account your own team, your strengths, your weaknesses. If your offensive line is getting blown off the ball, fourth and three, even on the opponent's 40-yard line, probably isn't a great play for you. If, if you're not going to be able to gain that three yards and you know it, that's probably not a great play for you. Fourth and goal from the one might not be a great play for you if you know your offensive line can't push. But for the most part, I think coaches are more educated about this. I think they're making good choices for the most part. Dan Lanning, and this is where this is coming from. This is Dan Lanning electing to go for three fourth downs in the, the Oregon and Washington game. There's only one I would disagree with. I think he should have kicked the field goal right before the half because there's no advantage when you're down near the goal line and you're in an, a fourth and goal situation. There's no advantage when the clock's about to run out to leaving the other team backed up against its own goal line. That only works if there's more time left. And it did work the next time. The next time they went for it on fourth and goal, they didn't get it. But Washington was backed up. They're very limited what they could call. Oregon gets a stop. Washington punts. Oregon gets great field position and scores. That worked fine. The fourth down at the end of the game, I didn't mind because the only, and this is, this is, this actually was not necessarily a pure analytics play. This was a case of Dan Lanning looking at the two teams and who's playing better and who is capable of doing what and making that choice. Here's why. If you make that fourth down, if you convert that fourth down, you take the ball out of Michael Penix Jr.'s hands. It never gets back into his hands. You win the game. If you put the ball back in Michael Penix Jr.'s hands at any point on the field, there is a danger that he will lead them to a touchdown drive. And there was enough time on the clock for them to do that. At any point on the field. So you could punt and you could back him up to the five, but he can take them 95 yards in the time allotted. Or you can give him the ball where you did, and he takes them, I believe, 55 yards in a very short amount of time. I don't think it's necessarily bad to use your analytics as long as you are also taking into account what your team can do and how the other team is playing. And I think that last fourth down call for Dan Lanning, while wrong because it didn't work, was correct. Because the percentages said you're probably going to make that. And if you do, you win the game. If you don't, you give the ball back to Michael Penix Jr. And if you give the ball back to Michael Penix Jr., which you would have done if you punted, you probably lose the game. 
That's it. That's that's the call. But again, know your team. Kirk Ferentz, with his offense, should punt every single time. His defense and his punter, Torrey Taylor, are a lot better than his offense. So if they have fourth and two on the 38-yard line, on the other team's 38-yard line, they should punt. Pin that team inside to five. Let Torrey Taylor cook. Because their offense stinks. They're not going to get that yard more than likely. They've broken a couple of long runs in the last few weeks. And then everything else has been painful. So for them, the smart play is to punt. For Oregon in that situation at the end of that game, the smart play was to go for it on fourth down. They just didn't make it. And that's, there's a, there's a Michael Lewis story where he interviews Shane Battier. The, the basketball player he played at Duke, played for the Houston Rockets. And he's talking about guarding Kobe Bryant and the analytics. It's, it's all about a, a basketball player who studies analytics to make himself a better defender. And there's this whole scenario where they build the whole story up to this one sequence where Shane Battier is guarding Kobe Bryant. And the story explains why Shane Battier does this and why he does that because this causes the expected points to drop this much. And this causes the EPA to drop this much. And after all that, Kobe Bryant rises up and he hits the shot. And Lewis asked Shane Battier, what, what, what'd you do wrong? He's like, nothing. Sometimes they just make it. Sometimes you don't get the fourth down. Sometimes the defense makes a play. But that doesn't make it the wrong call. You're playing percentages. It's, it's just like we, we do the ads for FanDuel here. You're playing percentages. You're not going to win every time. That's life. <laughs> it really is. It's life. But I don't think coaches are getting dumber because of analytics. I think you have to blend the study of analytics with an understanding of what your team can do. And I think the good coaches do that. And I think Dan Lanning made that correct choice at the end of that game. Just didn't turn out the way they wanted it to. Let's go to a question from Brett. Let's say the following scenario happens in the Big Ten. Ohio State beats Penn State. Penn State beats Michigan. Michigan beats Ohio State. All three win their other games and finish 8-1 and one in conference and 11-1 overall. Who wins the Big Ten East under that scenario? That's a great question, Brett. So if you go down the list of Big Ten tiebreakers, there is one that could potentially break this tie before you get to flipping coins or pulling names out of the hat. And it involves the other division. The Big Ten West is bad. I think we can all agree on that. It is not a good division. The teams in it are not as talented as the teams in the East for the most part. So how does this work? Basically, the way that tie would get broken after you went through all the East-related tiebreakers, but because none of them would have a loss to another East team, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. So you have to go to the West one. And it is, who has the better combined record among their opponents from the other division? So let's look at that. 
Ohio State plays Purdue, Wisconsin, and Minnesota out of the West. Those teams are currently four and six in the Big Ten. Michigan plays Nebraska, Minnesota, and Purdue. Those teams currently three and seven in Big Ten play. Penn State plays Illinois, Iowa, and Northwestern. Currently five and six in Big Ten play. Now, the, the one in the middle there of Penn State's group of West teams, that's the one I want you to concentrate on. The Iowa Hawkeyes, a team that fell 31-0 to Penn State, a team that has an offensive coordinator whose contract says if they don't average 25 points a game, then his contract will terminate this offseason. Ladies and gentlemen, the Iowa Hawkeyes may just go ahead and win the Big Ten West. They might wind up 7-2 and two or 8-1 and one in Big Ten play. If that happens, they'll have wins against all three, head-to-head wins against all three of the teams that each Michigan and Ohio State play. Now, I know there's some overlap there because they both play Minnesota and Purdue. Iowa could put Penn State in the Big Ten championship game in that scenario. Against, wait for it, Iowa. Because <laughs> Iowa's going to win the West. It's incredible. Like, I try not to mention the drive for 325, and it just comes back every time. It will not go away. The drive for 325 hovers over this entire college football season. Like the sword of Damocles. I love it. I absolutely love it. This would be a crazy scenario, by the way. The the last time something like this happened was 2008 when you had Texas Tech, Oklahoma, and Texas all tied atop the Big 12 South. Remember, Texas had beaten Oklahoma. Oklahoma had beaten Texas Tech. Texas Tech had beaten Texas. And basically, they used the BCS standings to break that because they wanted to see, okay, who's the most likely to wind up in the BCS championship game? We'll just take the highest ranked one and they'll play in the Big Ten, uh, the Big 12 championship game. So that's what happened in that year. But in this particular year, this, this tiebreak might work. Now, it's possible that these teams wind up having similar combined records. But the thing about it is, Iowa looks to be significantly better. I don't even know if I can use that word. Looks to have a significantly better record than, than most of these teams. Minnesota, by the way, about to play Iowa. The total in that game opened at 32 and a half. Now, here's the thing. If you're Penn State, Iowa beating Minnesota this weekend could be massive for you because Michigan and Ohio State both play Minnesota. So, the easiest way is just win all your games. But if you can't win all your games... Penn State, you got the edge. If if you all beat up on each other, Penn State has the edge. Now, I think Brett's scenario feels less likely. Here's here's one I I, I think maybe Penn State beats Ohio State, Michigan beats Penn State, Ohio State beats Michigan. That feels like the more realistic of those where they all end up with one loss. But it could work this way too. What a time that would be. What a time. (laughs) So, 
Our next question comes from Doug in Pittsburgh. And this one, another what's going to happen if it all ends up like this question, you're going to get frustrated here. I was frustrated reading it. So last week, there was a question of who would be in the 14 playoff where a one-loss Pac-12, Big 12, Big 10, and SEC champ were the options. I think the better question would be who's getting left out in this scenario. Florida State goes 13-0 and wins the ACC. Washington goes 13-0 and wins the Pac-12. Texas avenges its loss to Oklahoma and Jerry World. Alabama runs the table and beats Georgia in the SEC championship. Ohio State beats Penn State but loses at the end of the season to Michigan. Penn State beats Michigan up in State College so that all three teams finish at 11-1, and and whoever comes out of the East goes to Indy and beats the West champ. So we'll go with our Iowa dominates scenario and Penn state goes and beats Iowa. So you have 12 and one, Texas, Oklahoma, Georgia, Alabama, Penn state, then 11 and one, Ohio state and 11 and one, Michigan vying for two spots. Who's in. All right. So we know Florida state's in, we know Washington's in who is in, in this situation. There's now that there's a potential way to do this where it could work out where it wouldn't be an easy solution for the the committee, but if they wanted to make a point that could actually help the sport, then they, they should do this. And here it is 12 and one Texas gets in because they beat Alabama. They, they dared to schedule hard out of conference. They went on the road in the non-conference against a really good team and they beat them. They get in. The other one that would make it easier is let's say Notre Dame wins out and they're 10 and two. And instead of Penn State winning that three-team tiebreaker in the East, Ohio State wins that three-team tiebreaker in the East and goes and wins the Big Ten. And they're the 12 and one Big Ten champ. Well, they beat Notre Dame on the road. They actually scheduled somebody hard. You know, who'd Michigan play out of conference? Nobody. Who'd Georgia play out of conference? Nobody. They played Georgia Tech because they have to, but Georgia Tech wasn't that good. That's that's the solution I'd want, where the committee could just say, hey, guys, if you want to do this, if you want a shot, then don't schedule garbage. Give your fans something to watch. This is an entertainment product. Challenge yourselves. And then when the the playoff expands to 12, say, hey, look, we're going to do the same thing. Except this time, when you're we're deciding between that last at large or the one that's out, we're looking at your schedule. We're looking at your non-conference. What'd you do? I would love that. I would absolutely love it. Would that happen? No. I don't think that's what they would do. I think they'd take the Big Ten champ, whoever that is, and I think they take Alabama. That's who I think they take. Which they'd offer an explanation that would be completely unsatisfying to anyone. And they'd say, well, we've already expanded it, so this will never happen again. But what a nightmare that would be. And how annoying would that be? Especially if the team that lost the... the well, I don't know they put Alabama in. I think they'd have to put Texas in there over Alabama in that situation. So maybe they do Texas and Alabama, but I have a hard time imagining them leaving the big 10 champ out in this scenario. 
it's not a good answer any way you look at it. The best answer would be, again, if it's Texas at 12-1 and one, and Ohio State's there as the 12-1 and one Big Ten champ, you say, these two actually tried at a conference. They get the spot. I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that at all. I think that would make a great point, and that would say to these people, you, going forward, schedule good games. Schedule games your fans want to see. You can challenge yourselves in the, in the early conference season. We will not penalize you for losing those games. We will reward you for winning them. I think that's the best way to do it. And I hope that's what happens going forward. I hope that is what the 12-team playoff inspires because I know coaches think, oh, you got to try to go undefeated. No, you don't. You don't have to go undefeated anymore. In fact, you just got to win your conference and be one of the top four conference champs. And there are only going to be four power conferences now. Well, there's really only going to be two. But realistically, the, the four that will get the automatic bids, like those are going to be your buys. So if you win the SEC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, or the ACC, you're going to get a buy. It doesn't matter what you lost out of conference in that situation. So absolutely. If this happens, committee, please punish the teams that had terrible non-conference schedules and reward the ones that had good ones. That's what you say, all things equal. You go with that. I think that's the best way to do it. And I think it would encourage some better schedule making going forward because that 12-team playoff gives you the chance to lose a game and still be okay. Let it be a good game. Don't just go win a game that your fans don't care about, that nobody wants to watch on TV. Go make it a good game. Connor in the chat. What about the fact that Oklahoma scheduled Georgia non-conference, but it got canceled because of real land? Well, Georgia's in the same boat, Connor. They were both part of that series, and I know what the SEC did, and it happened. I know they can't control that, but their non-conference schedule sucked this year. So it is what it is. Reward the teams with good ones so that going forward, everybody will have a good one. And I, I realize Oklahoma and Georgia have good ones going forward. They don't have good ones now. Reward the good ones. That's all we can ask. Next question comes from Tony in Jacksonville, and it's a video question. Dear Andy, Tony coming to you from Jacksonville, Florida again. Two-part question. First part is, is it typical that it takes halfway through the season for the new OCs to kind of get their footing and figure out the play-calling rhythm with their rosters that they have? Thinking of Garrett Riley leaving TCU for Clemson, Kendall Bryles. Um, I feel like some of their offensive have been quite a struggle Um even including Tennessee losing Alex Golsich, how much of an impact do we minimize the impact of the OCs actually leaving in? Um, they have different play calling temperaments. I feel like this is a some of the offensive struggles of, of these some of these teams. I feel like it's having a larger impact than maybe what has um, been talked about um, on TV or different things like that. I just think that. Um, why is it such a struggle? I know they have a spring ball, but I feel like it's taking a little bit longer for some of these changes to have some of the benefits that 
they should have had by now. Uh, second, second question is what offensive coordinator head coach pairing do you think would be the most entertaining thinking of like Cliff Kingsbury or um, Graham Harrell being the OC at Iowa, uh, replacing Brian Ferentz for not hitting the drive for 325. What offensive coordinator would you like to see paired with a head coach that is a, a different ideology? Thanks. Have a good day. All right. So the impact of a new, new OC question, I don't think it necessarily takes that much time. I think it takes the right chemistry between OC and quarterback. I think that's probably the most important piece of it. Uh, you go back to last year, Marcus Satterfield was in his first year with Spencer Rattler at South Carolina, and it took them quite a quite a while to get going. It really wasn't until the end of the season that they got going. But that may just be because of that pairing. Garrett Riley seems to be having trouble getting going at Clemson. There was no trouble getting going at TCU. You know, Max Duggan didn't win the starting job. Chandler Morris did last year. Max Duggan came in when Chandler Morris got hurt and instantly TCU's offense started humming. So sometimes it's just the quarterback is the right guy. Sometimes it takes longer. I would argue with, with Florida State, you know, Mike Norvell is their primary play caller. He and Jordan Travis took some time, <laughs> took maybe a year or two, but man, they got it going now. So I, I really do think it is it is dependent on quarterback and coordinator. Sometimes they just click. and But a lot of times it takes some time. Uh, I'll give you another example from the weekend. It felt like Billy Napier and Graham Mertz kind of found something in that South Carolina game. That, that Florida's coach and, and their first-year quarterback who came from Wisconsin, that Billy Napier maybe found a, a combination of plays that, that Graham Mertz is really comfortable with that realize, hey, Graham Mertz likes to take a shot every once in a while. And if that's what they are going forward offensively, and it wasn't just that South Carolina had a bad day on defense, I'd say that's very promising for Florida. So, yeah, I, I do think a lot of that is just dependent on the chemistry between the QB and the coach. You know, I'll, I'll go with Lincoln Riley when Caleb Williams came in against Texas. That was almost immediate. They were great together almost immediately. So I, I do think that's part of it. As far as the best head coach OC pairing, putting Kirk Ferentz with a pure air raid guy would be fun. Like throw Cliff Kingsbury in there and Cliff Kingsbury would not be afraid to tell Kirk Ferentz where to stick it. So it would be fun watching Kirk Ferentz just go nuts as Kingsbury calls pass after pass after pass after pass. Now, I do think Kingsbury's NFL experience probably blunted some of his more pure air raid instincts. So he might run something more similar to what Lincoln Riley runs at USC now. And obviously, you know, Cliff's working with Lincoln at USC. So I, I think Kirk would probably be okay with a little, little power being run every once in a while, which is something that, that they run at USC. But that would be, that would be pretty spectacular. I had the, I'm trying to figure out who the funniest one to put with Jimbo Fisher would be because like Kirk Ferentz, Jimbo's an offensive guy. Jimbo is a fairly conservative play caller at this point or was, you know, last season, the last time we saw him as the primary play caller. And, you know, Bobby Petrino, I don't consider kind of a funny one. I think that actually is a decent match. If their line were blocking better, they'd probably be pretty good. But who would I put him with? 
I'd like to see. So if you all haven't watched UNLV, they've got Barry Odom's their head coach. Brennan Marion is their their OC. And Brennan Marion has what he calls the go, it's called the go-go offense. And he developed it at the FCS level. And he's he's been bouncing around some FBS teams. He was the receivers coach at Pittsburgh when Jordan Addison won the Blitnikoff. Then he was at Texas. Now he's back running an offense again at UNLV. He, he'd run the offense at William & Mary before that. That's a fun offense. There's a lot going on there. They do some, some crazy ring around the rosy stuff, and it is a lot of fun to watch. I think it would make Jimbo Fisher lose his mind watching, watching his coordinator call that stuff. But it's it's working. It's working right now at UNLV. So that one would be the probably the most fun. I think I would enjoy that. Let us move on to this question. Very hard, I thought, because this one, I feel like it changes quite a bit from week to week. This is uh, from MD Nichols Esquire. Rank the satisfaction of the following fan bases with second-year head coaches. Florida, USC, LSU, Notre Dame, Miami. This is very difficult because, one, these fan bases are highly volatile. How they feel this week might not match how they feel next week. They may be very ready to fire somebody now and, and great with them next week. They may be happy now and then be ready to fire somebody next week. So understand that. But I will try to put these in order. And I will start with most satisfied. I'm going to go with LSU in this one. And I realize there's some LSU fans out there that are like, no, no, no. We are not satisfied with Brian Kelly. We cannot have a defense that stinks. That is wrong. No, no, no. But he did get you an SEC West title in the first year. You do have very good players. You have a fun offense that scores tons of points. He pulled a quarterback out of the transfer portal who is putting up Heisman-type numbers this year. I realize he, he transferred in last year. But Jaden Daniels has developed pretty well, putting up Heisman-type numbers this year. And I do believe that having a great offense and a terrible defense is a lot better if you're a fan than having a terrible offense and a great defense. LSU is the opposite of Iowa. Like, Iowa fans are miserable. But at least LSU fans get to go watch some points get scored. If you're going to, you heard T-Bob Bear, who's a former LSU center, say it last week. If you're going to, to have the heart attack, you want to have it watching touchdowns. You don't want to have it watching your poor running backs just run smack into the offensive line and fall down. Like, that is, that's no fun. What LSU did against Missouri, while it might have taken years off LSU fans' lives, was fun. The LSU Ole Miss game, even though they lost, was fun. So I think the combination of winning the West last year is a fun team this year. Maddening, but fun. So I'm going to put them as the most satisfied of these groups. And here's the thing. LSU not out of it for the SEC, SEC title. They got a loss to Ole Miss. But if LSU keeps winning, if they were to go to Tuscaloosa and beat Alabama, they could be in Atlanta again. So I'm going to go with them as the, the most satisfied. Number two, Notre Dame. One, I think Notre Dame fans tend to be a little more 
even keel of of the groups of fan bases in this question they're definitely the calmest that doesn't mean they are calm but they are the calmest and they don't go too they're not as impulsive as these other groups now that said after marcus freeman had 10 guys on the field on the final play against ohio state many of them were mad many of them were saying do we have the right guy but I think after the demolishing of USC this past weekend, you're feeling pretty good about Marcus Freeman. You saw the scene of him in the tunnel after the game. He's about to go do his interview, and he's he's high-fiving people. I think they like the guy. I think they feel like he can bring them some very good recruits, the kind of depth that Notre Dame has lacked. But they have to cut out games like Louisville. They can't have a game like that. Now, I picked Louisville in that game. It was a classic trap game, but that's the next evolution. Marcus Freeman has to figure out how not to lose that. They figured out how not to lose a Marshall type game. They figured out how, to, how not to lose a Stanford type game. Now you got to, you got to move on. But I think Notre Dame can be a very successful program under Marcus Freeman. And I think it can be, especially in the, the era of the 12 team playoff, which is kind of built for a program like Notre Dame. So I, I think they're probably number two on this list. Number three, and probably heading down, USC. USC fans, rightly or wrongly, want the Pete Carroll era back. Not necessarily, you don't have to play exactly like Pete played, but they want that level of dominance back. They don't understand why USC cannot get back to that because USC does have so many built-in advantages that should allow it to get to that. The Lincoln-Riley thing, they were riding high last year. Obviously, they got so much better than they were in Clay Helton's last year. He brought Caleb Williams with him. Caleb Williams was tremendous, won the Heisman Trophy. He brought better players, upgraded the roster. The defense was bad, but you thought, okay, they'll upgrade the roster again, and the defense will get better, and it'll be just fine. Except, no, the defense is as bad or worse this year, and the offensive line may be worse. And that is a problem. because. They are supposed to just ascend, ascend, ascend until they are at the level of a national championship contender. And that's not where they are. You saw against Notre Dame what they are. They're going to have to play Utah. They're going to have to play Oregon. They're going to have to play Washington. I don't think they're getting through those three undefeated. I think they may lose two of those. That's the issue. The bar for Lincoln Riley was set probably higher Eh, maybe not higher than at LSU. I think the bar for Brian Kelly is the highest of these. But the bar for Lincoln Riley was probably the second highest. And I think USC fans are coming to the realization that you're basically getting the same product that Lincoln Riley put on the field every year at Oklahoma. It was good. It's not going to be good enough to get you what you want. So he's going to have to change for that to happen. Maybe he's got to change defensive coordinators. Maybe he has to change recruiting philosophies. Maybe he has to change practice philosophies. Something has to change or they will never reach the level of the Georgias, the Alabamas, the Ohio States, the Michigans. They won't get there. So that's the part that he's got to fix. And that's why I, I imagine USC fans are not as high on Lincoln Riley as they were even this offseason because they keep seeing the same thing happen over and over. Next, I'm going to go with Florida. 
Florida fans have been very dissatisfied with Billy Napier, but I will say there is a little glimmer of hope peeking through after that South Carolina game. And I realized it was a very close game. They could have very easily lost at South Carolina, but they didn't. And it feels like Billy Napier had a play calling breakthrough. I don't know if that again is, is because South Carolina's defense was not playing very well or because he said, you know what? Our defense isn't stopping anybody. We better score some more points. So we are going to be a little more aggressive. We're going to take some more shots downfield. Whatever it was, Graham Mertz looked incredibly comfortable doing it that way. And so I would like to see what that looks like against Georgia and against Missouri and against LSU and against Arkansas and against Florida State. Now, it may not be good enough to beat Florida State or LSU, and it probably definitely won't be good enough to beat Georgia. But if it wins them a couple more games and Florida's seven and five or it wins them three more games and they're eight and four, I think you count that season as a victory because Florida's best players right now are its youngest players. Billy Napier's done a good job of recruiting. He's got a class that ranks very high in on threes rankings. DJ Lagway is that, that quarterback in this class that coaches talk about where they, they absolutely love him. So if Billy Napier were to stack another couple classes, are they going to be pretty good? Because the, the guys that are playing big roles now that are young and making mistakes, they're good, but they're young and making mistakes. They are, they're older and maybe won't be making mistakes and will be better. And then you put really good players with them that are young that they can then help. So I th like I said, glimmer of hope. Billy Napier may, may rise on this list. He started out pretty low. Florida fans have been pretty down on him. But I think, I, again, I think the, the ones that are taking the long view are saying, you know what? There might be a path out of this. And it, he might be able to do it. We'll see. He's got a very tough stretch coming up. But if you win a couple games in that stretch, then there's, there's a chance. The bottom of the list is Miami. And not necessarily because Mario Cristobal has done a terrible job. It's because of one thing. Because they were all in on Mario Cristobal until he didn't take a knee against Georgia Tech. And then it felt like everybody was out. So I don't know what you do to earn back the trust other than just keep winning. And that's what he's going to have to do. The, the fact that they go to North Carolina and lose doesn't help. But look, North Carolina has been building to this. They are a really good team. You heard Mac Brown earlier. They're a good program. They don't have to play perfectly to win. They have really good players. They have an incredible quarterback. They have a good defense this year. So Miami losing in Chapel Hill is not an unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin was committed a week earlier against Georgia Tech. Mario Cristobal, the only thing he can do to earn back the trust is keep winning. But it's going to be hard because that is a fan base that turned quick. And I can't say I blame them. That situation is going to make you question everything. So he's got his work cut out for him. But they all do. Let's be honest. All those fan bases can turn on you on a dime. You know, if, if LSU 
has a bad couple weeks, Brian Kelly's going to get all of this smoke too. If Notre Dame loses one down the stretch that it's not supposed to, Marcus Freeman's going to get it. It's a tough job. That's what the money's for, as Don Draper would say. That's the reason they pay them all that money. They got to deal with all this crap. But I can't wait to see who emerges from this group. Like, who's who's the one or two who become longtime coaches at their school, very successful, and then who gets churned out? It's going to happen. It happens to everybody. It's like the divorce rate at this point. But that's a great question from MD Nichols Esquire. Great question. And great questions from everybody tonight. Thank you so much. I love it when you help drive the show because you have such great ideas. You think so deeply about this sport, and it's so much fun. Best listeners, best viewers in the world, thanks so much. Big show coming up on Tuesday. We got Jim Nagy from the Senior Bowl. We're also talking to Brent Hubbs from VolQuest about Tennessee's situation as they go into the Alabama game. Defense looks great. Offensive line playing really well. What's going on at quarterback? Talk about it on Tuesday's show. We'll talk to you then.